As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. Stephen's out on a reporting trip today. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss... On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the A-level and GCSE results. And you ask us, will the environment be the most important issue at the next general election? So GCSE students are receiving their results in England, Wales and Northern Ireland today. And again, it's a record set of top grades, which are sevens or A's and above, rose by 2.7 percentage points on last year. This is basically a repeat of what happened with A-level results yesterday, which is being described as grade inflation, although that's probably not quite accurate. It's just that there's no benchmark for the grading this year because teachers are providing the grades for the students. And there's been a lot of political fallout from this, but it's not quite the same as the scandal last year, is it, of the, mm. the, from the mutant algorithm? Uh, algorithm yeah. <laughs> First of all, what are the Conservatives saying about it, Alva? They're kind of basically accepting that it's sort of the lesser of two evils of the two systems, aren't they? Yeah, I think so, which makes, in a way, last year look worse. Mm. I mean, my feeling is, I suppose, because Westminster is so quiet at the moment everyone is on holiday so even though Keir Starmer has called for Gavin Williamson to be sacked today it doesn't really feel like a very urgent burning issue for people in politics and certainly I don't think anyone that I've been speaking to since I came back from holiday has been actually speaking about the the A-level results. Which says a lot in itself really doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. but it's but it's interesting because it's, it's, it's all turned into this debate about inflation and I suppose the Labour criticism is that there's still a huge gulf between like private school results and state school results and that has increased with this system this year but actually 
a lot of the debate has just been about grade inflation and whether, you know, an A is now meaningless because, you know, I, I don't think that that's the right way to think about A-level grades. I suppose it is different for GCSE because they determine the path of your life in so many different ways. But for A-level, those are kind of arbitrary grades in order to allocate university places. No one bases future decisions on that. So if they're inflated relative to other years, I don't see really why that matters, except in terms of admissions to university potentially next year if you take a gap year or in comparison with people who got their results last year and who maybe have taken a gap year and are applying for university now. Apart from that quite narrow comparison between people in the years above and below, whether, you know, an A means something different one year to other years doesn't really matter when it's just a sort of it's a university system I find that sort of discussion about inflation quite weird I don't know what you've made of it yeah I think I think that's right I think like you say an A meaning something slightly different one year than others shouldn't really matter particularly not when people know exactly why that you know, if you see that someone has taken their A-levels on their CV or whatever they're supplying, their application to university in 2020, 2021 or 2022, because like you say, it will have implications for grades next year, then you know that these were unusual years for grading, but also really difficult years for the students themselves. So, I mean, it does seem like the the, the fact of the sort of extraordinary nature of the pandemic kind of takes away from the problem, if you like. And if ministers sort of get what they want, which is a return to normal exams next year, you'd hope that that would be sort of taken into account by whoever is basing a student's future on their grades, whether it's a university or an employer. Then the interesting thing is, I suppose, the politics of calling for resignations, which is something that you've also been discussing on the special series of the podcast that you've been doing with Armando Iannucci, that we've all been doing, but you do the episode on why yes. people don't resign anymore. <laughs> which we planned just before Matt Hancock resigned. <laughs> Thwarted by Matt yeah. Hancock. <laughs> but, but the principle does apply. I mean, last year year we were living through a really mad scandal of so many students everywhere having their futures completely decimated by this really faulty unreliable system that was terrible for that you know a terrible discrepancy between private schooling and state educated students and Gavin Williamson didn't resign then and also interestingly Labour didn't call for him to resign then, apart from Angela Rayner, who, just from speaking to people about that, felt that she had to call for him to resign because she'd been doing, you know, the media around all morning, talking about how terrible he was, what a disaster this was, how serious it was. And then she felt it would be ridiculous not to then follow through with saying that he should go when she was asked. And I think that that was actually in the drama between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner in during the attempted reshuffle that was then botched that was one of the issues that came up I don't think it was the main one but this this feeling that Angela Rayner could be a bit flighty or impulsive um I think she she and her team would say that you know she has good political instincts on this sort of thing but this feeling that she made calls for resignations that hadn't been signed off was something that had caused a little bit of a division early on in Keir Starmer's leadership and her deputy leadership. So I think that's quite interesting that then a year on, 
there isn't so much of an outcry over these results, I think it's fair to say. But Keir Starmer has himself called for Gavin Williamson to go. So what's different? Probably the fact that a reshuffle is really likely, that the Tories who haven't turned off their phones and gone off on holiday are expecting there to be a reshuffle soon. It's the sort of thing you never really know for sure. That's the sort of thing that no one really close to the Prime Minister is ever going to really confirm to you until it's happening. But there's a real feeling that it's going to happen and that Gavin Williamson is one of the people who has been picked to to be demoted or sacked completely. There have been reports that Kemi Badenoch could be the person to replace him. I just think that, that that's so interesting because I suppose there, there are differences of opinion on whether it's even useful to call for people to resign. But if you think of the bar that needs to be cleared, surely the bar is lower this year than it was last year when Labour didn't call for him to go. Yeah, that's really interesting. And what you say about that source of tension perhaps between Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer when she did call for Gavin Williamson to resign last year. That's really interesting because probably her political instincts then were quite close to being right, even though it is always a risk to call for someone to resign when you don't know that they're actually going to resign. Because there were conservative politicians last year calling for him to resign, right? And there was a lot of dissatisfaction in the way that Gavin Williamson handled the whole thing. You know, it was in summer, it was interrupting MPs' holidays, like you say, they weren't able to turn their phones off like they have this year. And so there was that feeling of of rancour in the Conservative Party, which means it's always sort of better, for, it's better sort of ground for the Labour Party to exploit when it's when that's the kind of feeling, whereas this year it doesn't seem to be the same. So that shows that the political calculation has changed for the Labour Party probably in light of these reshuffle rumours. But they did call for his resignation officially in January as well. I've just been rereading this sort of very, very detailed press release that they put out saying that they wanted him to resign because of the way that he'd failed children throughout the pandemic. And they mentioned the free school meal scandal, the exam, the exam debacle last year, and the fact that lots of underprivileged children didn't have the devices to learn from home like their more privileged peers. So they did do that in January, which I thought, you know, I do think it's it makes a party look weak if they're constantly calling for someone's resignation who hasn't gone yet. So I do understand that this time round there's there's a reshuffle on the horizon. I don't rate that kind of politics, especially not when it's not it's not exactly the scandal that it was last year. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because if you cast your mind back to January, that was a quite difficult time for the country that it was you know incredibly bleak going into another lockdown and I think that certainly I felt it was really really clear at that point that we were going to see a, like a really horrible second wave and it was sort of beyond our control because all of the mixing had already happened for it so you just had to sort of wait for it to be you know the number of cases was quite high but you had to wait to see that reflected in hospitalizations and deaths a few weeks later and so it's just interesting given that the Labour Party has really grappled with this idea of trying to be a constructive opposition and not being seen to carp from from the sidelines and so on. In the summer, I think people were kind of outraged with Gavin Williamson, but also crucially, things had unlocked and that there was a bit of a feeling of, of, a, of a return to normal politics. And crucially, Labour thought that there was going to be a return to normal politics. They weren't really banking on a second wave like that, even if they sort of 
say that they were or they talk about their calls for a circuit breaker in terms of their political plans they thought that they wouldn't be talking about the pandemic in January and so on so I think it's interesting that in August when they could be more political they didn't call for him to be sacked and then in January at this quite bleak moment for the country when everyone was braced for the you know the huge numbers of deaths that we did eventually see that was chaotic sending children back to school for one day really kind of farcical but it but it's strange that that the call for the resignation didn't quite match the tone of the moment but I think that in this case this is a new team calling for this Keir Starmer is practically one you know one of the few people still you know consistent across those those three calls or those three moments of pressure for Gavin Williamson and this time clearly they've just decided that He's likely to go anyway, and this is potentially an easy win for Labour if he he is then reshuffled. Mm, And I suppose when he is or if he is, then they can say, well, we've been calling for this since January. Mm. Yeah. Unless, of course, Boris Johnson feels (laughs) less inclined to sack him, given what we know about the way he felt during the Dominic Cummings scandal and feeling like he didn't want to bow to media pressure to sack him because he remembered how it had felt after his affair and and the media pressure for him to be sacked. I mean, I don't think that there's really even a big clamour for Gavin Williamson to go this time. It doesn't feel like it's been as big of a story. Yeah. So maybe Boris Johnson will still stick to his plans. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget to listen to our bonus podcast series, Westminster Reimagined with Armando Iannucci. You can get it in this podcast feed. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So today we have a question from Glenn. He asks, will the next general election finally be the one where the environment and climate change plays a central role? Or given recent polling showing that the environment is still not in Tory voters' top three issues, will it again be pushed to the fringes? So this is recent YouGov polling which did show that overall the climate emergency is the third most important issue facing Britain. But then the breakdown among different groups of voters is a little bit different. But I think that what that showed and also recent opinion polling on that is is actually that the electorate is quite united on the importance of climate change. Like there aren't that many climate sceptics in the UK and yeah, pretty much just looking at it, the public is broadly supportive of 
policies to combat climate change and even if in the abstract they're still less willing to support policies that would hit them financially when there are kind of more specific examples around eating less meat or flying less they don't actually mind as much so I think this is interesting because my view I suppose is actually that we're quite blessed in the UK to have a presence in in every political party of people who really seriously care about the climate emergency having spoken to a senior politician from another country she was saying that that it's it's quite unusual to have for example conservatives who are so committed to the climate crisis with a real like wealth and depth of expertise on the issue and so i think it means that Clearly, the Conservatives are the least ambitious of all the parties when it comes to climate change. And that's not really a partisan point, because even in terms of targets, it's the least ambitious target, net zero by 2050. They've always sort of been a little bit behind the other parties. And you can, and then, you know, Lib Dems are next and then Labour and then the Greens. You can actually see the spectrum of it in terms of ambition. But there is this support across the board for tackling this which I think it makes it less clear whether it's a salient electoral issue because um, I suppose that you can't out green the greens but there are individual people in all the parties who are quite serious and interesting on this I don't know what you think whether whether that you think this is likely to actually set the agenda at the next election I feel I think I feel a little bit gloomy about it actually about the chances of it driving you know people's choices in the ballot box come the next election because if you think about the previous general election we had it was in December it was amid flooding I think I remember sitting in this room and discussing with you Stephen and Patrick Maguire who used to work with us at the time about whether the floods would affect the election result and of course I mean if we think about the fact that Boris Johnson was criticised for not going to visit people who had been hit by floods and if we think about the fact that the Conservative Party does have the least ambitious climate targets and has been failing to hit existing targets over the past 10 years of of them being in government, then you'd think that perhaps voters who were voting along the lines of climate change wouldn't have have voted the government in quite so comprehensively. So that didn't happen then in that context. And that was on the back of, you know, talk about a green surge, the Green Party getting record results in local elections, the European election results suggesting that the Greens were gaining in popularity. And of course, we've seen that this year as well with the most recent local elections in May, the Green Party taking council seats from Labour and the Conservatives. So you'd expect sort of with that context of the Green surge that there might be that that might be translated at a general election. But it didn't happen last time round in the context where you would have thought that the impact of the climate crisis on our daily lives might have been at at its most salient. And so if we have another May election this time round, then, you know, I do worry that it may not be on the top of voters' minds. And again, another similarity is that in that general election, the environment had shot up to one of the top three, I think, most important issues among the general public, in in the polling at least. And so, you know, we still have that now with this most recent polling, but it didn't translate in necessarily into a surge of support for a party that had sort of more ambitious plans in terms of trying to quell the impact of of global warming last time round. So I'm not sure whether it would this time round. Having said that, you know, there has been a lot of very obvious 
visual suggestion of, of the way that the that climate change is affecting the planet and the, the UK in particular since then. And if that carries on, which it is very likely to do and intensify and worsen and affect more people's lives, then perhaps it, it will drive more people in terms of their voting choices. But I feel quite pessimistic about it and I'm very sorry about that, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the thing is, if you think about what actually the, the next general election is likely to look like, which is still not clear and we don't even know when it's going to no. be, even though everyone in Westminster thinks they do, I think that it's likely to be what Labour see it as, as, as a change election. And if they don't frame it as a change election, then they think that they are going to lose. Mm-hmm. And then, and it's probably quite likely then, in turn, that the Conservatives will pitch it as, you know, re-elect us for a second term. And I, I wonder if the message from both parties will end up being quite similar in terms of we're rebuilding after the pandemic, we're rebuilding, you know, we're building back better, we're addressing inequalities across the country, we want to create like great green jobs and innovative technology, we're going to be a world leader in, you know, green tech, da 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 here's here's our like brilliant bold vision for the future and the Conservatives are saying we've started doing that, let us finish it and Labour are saying don't listen to them, we're more credible on this stuff. And so I think that the climate awareness is baked into that in both visions. In both parties, there is a sense that the way you level up a certain place, the way you level up Hartlepool is probably by ensuring that, you know, there is investment in sustainable energy or creating jobs that are in some way linked to the green agenda. And also I think all the parties are kind of aware of the quick job creation schemes available from, for example, insulating every home in the UK and paying people to do that. So I feel like this is in the political consciousness, but I don't think it will maybe change how people vote so much because as the consciousness rises... In the general public, it rises in politicians too. And I think we're seeing that in the Conservative Party. There are lots of people in the Conservative Party who are really good on this and who've been thinking about it for a really long time. But the recent messaging on it, you can see a a heightened awareness. I suppose the question is whether the slight divisions on that become more apparent because there, there were some leaked WhatsApp messages from... Conservative MPs in former Labour heartlands in the Red Wall, which I'm going to try to stop saying so much. It's they, the Blue Wall now. <laughs> <laughs> and they were saying, you know, all vo- you know, our voters didn't vote, didn't vote for this, and they were sort of worried about this sort of whether this green stuff would come across as a bit metropolitan elite. And by the same token, even though it's a little bit different, Rishi Sunak has reportedly been a bit concerned about how much these measures to tackle the climate emergency would cost, which I think is maybe not a great long-term way of thinking about costs because, you know, (laughs) flood damages cost a lot of money, don't they? I think it's it's interesting whether the Conservatives are going to become more and more climate literate and making a bolder and bolder climate offer, especially around COP, or whether these divisions become more apparent. I'm not really clear which way it's going to go yet. I think that's a really good point because I think by the time we get to the next election, whenever it is, and we don't know when it's going to be, the momentum from COP and all the photo opportunities that I imagine will come with it will probably have died down by that point. 
And equally, if these divisions do end up coming to something, they will probably be at at their height by that point. So you can already see it, like you mentioned, those WhatsApp messages, but also, you know, the Telegraph running this sort of slightly bogus story about the dangers of hydrogen boilers. And you can see that there are concerns on perhaps the right, more to the right of the Conservative Party or or to those who are more concerned about sort of the day-to-day costs on, on individual people's lives of having to change both things in their homes, but also their lifestyles in terms of sort of the cost of electric cars, the cost of changing your boiler and insulating your house and these kind of day-to-day issues, the cost of food as well. I think that's only probably for the Conservative Party going to become more of a problematic divide for them, which might take the sheen off some of Boris Johnson's sort of very enthusiastic proclamations about trying to protect the environment, which is, you know, something he is genuinely committed to. I don't really buy some of the criticism on the left, which is that it's sort of it's all rhetoric and hot air because it is something that he has been committed to for for a long time in his political career. And you can see that with the way that they're they're sort of trying to persist with things like LTNs, the low traffic neighbourhoods in sort of councils around the country and, and other kind of measures that have been quite unpopular and divisive as well because of that commitment to cycling and walking and sort of greener transport. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.